Genesis chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his right hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged on the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. It is the Bible story that critics love to criticize. Steve Wells, author of The Skeptic's Annotated Bible, said this. He said, Abraham shows his willingness to kill his son for God. Only an evil God would ask a father to do that. Only a bad father would be willing to do it. Well, not to be left off, Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion, refers to the same story when he says this, a modern moralist cannot help but wonder 
how a child could ever recover from such a psychological trauma, alluding to Isaac. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying, and he continues the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was only obeying orders. He would go on to add this question, what moral lessons could one derive from this appalling story? I can't resist the opportunity to mention that if these men deny the existence of God, therefore making the Bible just another book, that in that very process they've undercut any moral ground to object to this. If there is no God, there is no right and wrong, and killing children would be, well, just a matter of personal preference. But it is a disturbing story, isn't it? Who is it a bit disturbed by this instruction God gives Abraham in verse 2. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Take Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. I would submit just on the surface, on so many levels, it seems, it seems wrong. We don't have to go back very far to Genesis 9 and verse 6 where God condemns the murder of the innocent. How could he then advocate this? But it gets worse than that because you get to the book of Jeremiah and Jeremiah chapter 19 and verse 5. In that context, he's calling out Israel for the participating in the pagan practice of child sacrifice. And he says in Jeremiah 19 and verse 5 that this is a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Really? And then, remember that this is this is not a child. This is the child. This is Isaac, the one through whom God promised that the blessing to all families would flow. It's not like, look, if Isaac is taken out here, what God can do is just have Abraham and Sarah bear another child. That won't work because the promise must flow through Isaac. That's what God said would happen. And yet, here he's telling Abraham to kill Isaac. How does that work? And how do you ask a father? How do you ask a father to kill his beloved son? Unbelievers are not the only one who wrestle with this story. There are people all over this country sitting in church buildings right now this morning who look at this story and they think, well, that isn't true. This didn't happen. God would never require that. This story is not a true story. And somehow, somehow it just got slipped into the Bible. They deny that it's even something that really happened. And maybe even some of us are uncomfortable too. We're going to be reading this story this week, and I fear it's one of those stories that you come across in Scripture and you think, wow, I really don't get what's going on here. And so we turn the page and go on to chapter 23 and find something that's a little more comfortable. In fact, we do that with the Bible all the time. Have you noticed that? We get over to the book of Revelation, and there's all that wild stuff about dragons and beasts and battle, and we don't know what to do with that, and so... 
Uh, well, some people have called Revelation the turn back book. You go all the way through the Bible, you get there, and you say, ooh, that's too hot, let's turn back and go back to Genesis, except for chapter 22. Or we stumble across hard places in the text like this. This is a hard place in this text, a, a difficult story to figure out. And rather than asking questions and digging deeper, we, uh, we move on for easier territory. And along the way, we will miss some important things. And so as we're preparing our Bible reading to read Genesis 22 this week, I want to talk a little bit about what seems to us to be God's unreasonable demand. Why did God ask Abraham to do this? Rather than just dismissing it as a story that is not authentic, maybe what we need to do is dig a little deeper and ask the question, why is this here? And what am I supposed to learn from it? In fact, I think that's a really interesting question. If indeed guys like Dawkins is right and the Bible is just a fraud, something that men made up, why would this story even be here? Surely this would be one of the things that you would take out if you were making all of this up, not include. So why is this story here? And what is it that we are supposed to learn from it? I want to prime the pump for the Bible reading this coming week and ask you to consider with me two reasons that I think we have this story. I'll tell you in advance, the first will not be as important as the second, but I want you to see both of them. So, let's begin with this. First of all, I think this story is here because it is telling us something about the faith of Abraham. In fact, I'll just tell you, when I read this text, that is the first thing that sort of naturally jumps off the page to me, that this story is saying something to us about the faith of Abraham. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you've been doing your Bible reading and listening to the text talk, that's tonight, by the way, text talk, latter part of 18, going through 21, right up to 22. Come back tonight and we'll look at those passages together. But if you've been listening to the text talk, you notice that, that since chapter 12, we've been talking about the faith of Abraham, right? It's sort of a sub-theme running through that section. And what have we learned about the faith of Abraham? Well, We've learned that how his faith is kind of depends on what, you do, what day you catch him, right? Because there were times when his faith was remarkably strong. God said something, he believed it and obeyed and acted accordingly and appeared to be a man of great faith. That's just not what we see all the time, right? Because sometimes he had moments where his faith seems to falter and he seems doubtful. And so he gets down into Egypt and he's worried that Pharaoh will want his wife. And so he cooks up the scheme to lie about their true relationship and makes a big mess down there. And as if he didn't learn anything from that, he would do the same thing with, with King Abimelech. He would lie about him, lie to him about his wife. And, and it was all predicated on a lack of faith. He was worried these men would kill him. But wait a minute, God had said through his descendants this promise would be fulfilled. Abraham's got to have a descendant. He's got to have a child. That doesn't happen yet, or that hadn't happened yet. And so God surely will not let him die, right? And yet he doubts. He doesn't have faith. We saw that in the case of Hagar when he and Sarah cook up a plan together to try to help God work out his plan. Over and over again we see his faith faltering. In fact, if you'll back up for a minute to Genesis 15. Let me just lay these two examples side by side. Genesis 15, look at verse 5. 
It says that God took Abraham outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. He's promising Abraham that he would grow into this great nation. And verse 6 says of Abraham that he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. There we see that strong faith, right? Now jump ahead. For me, it's one page turn to chapter 17. And look down at verse 16. This is chapter 17, verse 16. Again, God speaking to Abraham about his descendants says of Sarah, I will bless her, verse 16. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of many nations. Kings of peoples will come for her. Now look at 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It's hard to imagine we're talking about the same man, right? One minute he's doubting, the next minute he's believing. Until we get to chapter 22. And God says in verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. It is difficult to imagine a man being given a more difficult command, is it? And yet what is interesting here is that there is nothing in the text that would indicate any hesitation on the part of Abraham. He does not object he doesn't even ask a question. In fact, in verse 3, it says, And so Abraham rose early in the morning. I wonder, are we safe in assuming that's the next morning? I mean, the text doesn't quite say it like that, but I think that's the implication, that he got up the next day, he began collecting, verse 3 tells us, all the things necessary to go and offer this sacrifice. And then in verse 5, he comes to the land of Moriah, and, and he takes the things he's collected, and he and Isaac go up on the mountain, and he, he obeys the Lord every step, all the way up to that moment where he has raised the knife to slay his son. He does exactly what God told him to do. It was only God who stayed his hand and prevented him from slaying his son. But there's something I want you to see here, that there's more going on than just Abraham doing what God said. If that's all we see in the story, we're missing some important things that are there. I want you to notice carefully his words in verse number 5. Are you there? Look at his words in verse 5. As they prepare to go up on the mountain, Abraham speaks to the servants who have come with them, and I want you to listen to what he said. He says to the servants, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Did you see that? Notice the personal pronoun that he uses at the end of the verse. We will worship and return. Do you see it? Who's going up to worship? Abraham and Isaac. Who's coming back? 
Abraham and Isaac. Abraham had no doubt that Isaac was not going to be sacrificed on that day, or at least if he was, something would be going, something else would be going on, something else was going to happen. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrew writer gives us a little insight. We have more information in this text so that we know what's going on in Abraham's mind. In verse, in verse 17, the text says, by faith when he was tested, by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. And so even the Hebrew writers is building this up for us. This is the son of promise, and, and he's going to offer his only begotten son. Do you see that? And then in verse 18, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants will be called. So the Holy Spirit is building us up for it. He's saying, he's the one. Isaac is the one to whom the promise was going to come. And Abraham's told to go for and up. Now look at verse 19 because this is interesting. In verse 19 the Hebrew writer adds that Abraham considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. You see what's going on in Abraham's mind? Even if Isaac had to be killed, Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead. He believed it because God had promised that this promise had to flow through Isaac. And so even if that meant Isaac had to be raised from the dead, Isaac would live. There is no doubt in Abraham's mind about that. And I read that and I wonder, is this Abraham? Is this the guy we've been reading about who's lying to Pharaoh and Abimelech about who Sarah really is, who's trying to help God out and cook up a plan with Sarah to come up with another heir? Is this the Abraham we've met so far? What's happened to him? How does he go from the man who laughs in chapter 17 at the notion he and Sarah will have a God to a man who can raise the knife? What's happened to him? He and Sarah had a child. At the exact time God said he would have a child, even when he was a hundred years old. Those events we read about last week in chapter 21, the coming of Isaac into the world, it has changed everything about Abraham. He has gone from a faltering man who doubted and struggled to a man who now knows God can do whatever it takes. His faith has grown. And we see that here in Genesis chapter 22. And now we understand why in Hebrews chapter 11, this man whose faith sometimes was strong and sometimes weak is listed among those with, with great faith because that's what we see finally in Genesis 22. He really believes that God will do exactly what he says he will do. And so I would submit to you that this story is here to teach us about the faith of Abraham, to show us how that faith has grown and how by us it needs to be imitated. But I will confess to you that I am not real satisfied with that answer. Okay, so I see the growth of Abraham's faith, but I have to tell you, this looks like an awfully cruel test to demonstrate his faith. Are you with me on that? Couldn't there have been another way? And I think the reason we continue to wrestle 
is because like Bible critics, what we do is we work on the surface. We just look at this story and we isolate it and try to figure out what it means. I don't think we can figure out this story, brothers and sisters, until we quit isolating it and realize that Genesis 22 is one chapter, it's one episode from the life of Abraham that fits perfectly like a puzzle piece into a bigger story. We've been saying that, right? The Bible is telling a story. It's telling the redemption story, how God, through a descendant of Abraham, was going to bring the blessing of salvation to the whole world. And to understand the individual stories, we have to appreciate that they fit into a bigger context. Do you see that? And I would submit to you that this story, the story here in Genesis 12, oh, listen, it is playing a key, pivotal role in the Bible story. In fact, I think if we'll not pass over but pause and look more deeply, I think what we find in Genesis 22 is that this son of Abraham, Isaac, is foreshadowing another son who is going to be a sacrifice. Did you pick up on that as we were reading through that together? Listen, folks, Jesus, Jesus has been in the story well, since Genesis chapter 3, but he's been in the Abraham story since Genesis 12, right? When God said, in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. By the time we get to the end of the Bible story, we know what all that means. We know that that is Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, would be the, bring the blessing of salvation to everyone. And so, and so, listen, as we're going through these Isaac stories and dealing with all the child drama about how a guy who's 100 years old with his wife who's 90 years old is going to have a baby, how's all that going to work? All that child drama, Jesus is there. We need Isaac. You see it? So that we can have Jesus. And so though his name is not mentioned, all of this drama is about bringing Jesus into the world. And then we get here to chapter 22. And what the Holy Spirit does with this story is he foreshadows what is coming with Jesus. Do you see that? As we read through Genesis 22, did you pick up on some parallels between what happens to Isaac and what happens with Jesus? How about the fact that in both of these cases, there is birth drama? Did that dawn on you? In Isaac's story, we had all the drama about the age of his parents, right? And then you get to, then you get to the Gospels, and we have all the problem, all the drama with Jesus' birth, except this time, the woman is not too old, she's too young. She's not even married yet. She has not been with a man, and she, is, and she is pregnant. What do both of the stories illustrate? That God is the one who brings this child into the world. And then there's this. In both cases, these are, these are sons. These are only sons. These are beloved sons. And then both are offered at Moriah. In fact, some scholars believe that the reference to Moriah here in Genesis 22 would have taken Abraham and Isaac into the very vicinity of where that other sacrifice would be. To be transparent with you, there's some dispute about that, but that is at least a possibility, that they are going to the place where one day Jesus would be offered as a sacrifice. And then fourthly, and this is important, both of the sons... Both of the sons are willing 
participants in the sacrifice. And that's where guys like Dawkins absolutely miss it on this story. They want you to think that, G, that, that Isaac is like a four-year-old toddler running around that daddy throws up an altar and tries to stab, on an altar and tries to stab. Folks, that is not an accurate reading of this text. Did you notice some of the things were told about Isaac? When they get to the place in verse 6, it said, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and what did he do it do with it? Laid it on Isaac. What did he take? He took the knife and some little vessel that would hold the coals from which they're going to start the fire. You see how that worked out? Isaac got the heavy load. It's kind of like when you're taking bags of groceries out of the back of the car. Uh, Heidi gets the bag with the bread. I get the one with the canned goods, right? So that always works out. Isaac was stronger than his father, and he was given the heavier load to bear. And then in verse 7, there is this conversation. Did you notice that? Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Behold, here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb? What does that tell you about Isaac's age? He's old enough to reason. He understands about sacrifices. He recognized in this setting they brought all these things needed except something was missing, and he questions his dad about that. Brothers and sisters, this is not a little four-year-old running around with daddy on a trip. Far more likely is that Isaac is at least a teenager, a young strong man, able to bear the load of wood. Think about it. Y'all ever carried firewood before? Yeah, I don't want to be carrying that. I want to, find a, I, want to, I want to find a teenage boy to carry that for me, too. He carries the heavy load of wood for his father. This is not, this is not a toddler. This is at least a kid who's a teenage boy. Maybe he's even older than that. And remember also that Abraham, Abraham is at 54 like I am. Abraham is more than 100 years old by this point. Honestly, does anyone believe that this decrepit 100-year-old man is going to grab this teenage boy against his will and throw him on that altar, that makes no sense at all. And that is not what's happened here. The only way this sacrifice happens with Isaac is if he is a willing participant in the promise or in the process. And that makes me think, that makes me think about Jesus too. Because in John 10 and verse 17, he said, no one takes it away from me. I give my life freely. And then I think about the wood for the offering. The fact that in both cases, the sacrifice carries their wood. Did you notice that? Isaac bore the wood. Jesus carried the wood on his back, carried the cross. And then there's this. In both cases, victory is announced in advance. Remember? Going back to verse, verse 5, is it? We will worship and return, right? Victory is announced in advance. And Jesus did that in Matthew 16 and verse 21. He announces that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed, and rise again on the third day. Victory is announced in advance. And then there is in verse 8 that 
that concluding comment from Abraham in the conversation about the sacrifice, when Isaac is wanting to know, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Do you notice what Abraham says there? Listen to his words. Verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb. I understand, brothers and sisters, that that has an application in this immediate context. God's going to provide the animal for sacrifice. But in reality, that's the story of the whole Bible, folks. How God, through the family of Abraham, is providing the lamb for sacrifice. Do you see that? So in John 1 and verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see it? All of these pieces in the story of Abraham and his son Isaac and the sacrifice he was called to make, all of these pieces are foreshadowing another story about a father whose son is going to be sacrificed. Jesus is in this story, brothers and sisters. Do you see it? It all foreshadows a more important sacrifice that is coming. Critics miss that because they're consumed with a story. They, they view it in isolation and they don't see it in the bigger story. In fact, in reality, brothers and sisters, God did not require Abraham to sacrifice his son, did he? No, no, when the time came, God intervened and would not permit this sacrifice. And that's where the two stories diverge, isn't it? It all foreshadows a time when it will be a different son, God's son, who is being offered. And God would not intervene, but let him die. The truth of the matter is, folks, this request in Genesis 22 and verse 2, sacrifice your son, your only son. This request that outrages people is exactly the thing that we needed God to do for us. What he did not require Abraham to do, he did do. And maybe the horror of asking a father to sacrifice his son is meant to communicate to me and you what God was willing to do so that we could be rescued from our sins. There is more to the story. The question is, how will we respond to such an amazing act of love? How do we respond to what God was willing to do for us? I don't think that that idea has ever been captured in human writing than the, the last line of the hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cost. Y'all remember that song? We don't sing it so much anymore, but it is one of my favorite Lord's Supper songs, especially the last line, because the last line says, were the whole realm of nature mine. If I possessed everything to be possessed on earth, he said, that were a present far too small. That would not be enough. And then he closes with this. Love so amazing, so divine, 
demands my soul, my life, my all. God didn't ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. He intervened and he stopped it. But it all foreshadowed that time when he would give his. When he would not stop it. So we could be delivered. What does he deserve for me and you? And is he getting that? Maybe as a disciple, I've given God a half-hearted commitment. I've not given the all that he deserves. And maybe I realize that. Or, or maybe you've never decided to let the Lamb of God take away your sins. You've not taken advantage of this amazing sacrifice, the moment where God didn't stop it. He didn't intervene. And yet you've not let yourself be so impressed with his love that you would act on that and do something and become his child. Is that where you are today? This thing that God did, what does it mean to you? What does it deserve from you? There's something you need to make right with him. We want to help you do that. You can let us know by making your way to the front right now while we stand, while we sing.